This morning, I am really excited about starting this new series. We've entitled it, Believe God, Faith for the Journey. It's on the little book of Nehemiah, which uh, I'm going to ask you to turn there. So if you don't know where it is, it's in the Old Testament, so first half of the Bible. Uh, if uh, it's stuck right between Ezra and the little book of Esther, so if you get to Job or Psalms, you went a little too far. It, it's a wonderful book, and we're, this is going to kind of lead us right up into, up into this idea of uh, Christmas. So let's read the first four verses here and kind of let it set the tone. So the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, for those of you that have uh, been around here, you know we love to do expository preaching. We love to dive into a book. And one of the things that we always talk about is context is king, right? So when you think about Philemon, to understand the historical context out of which Paul was writing and what, what had happened. And that's also true when we look at the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is really difficult. We've got 39 books. They, they're kind of all over the place at different points in history. And so, so I want to start today with a history lesson of the Old Testament. I can sense the excitement. I've often thought in a different life, I mentioned last week, I probably would have been a lawyer, maybe gone into politics. I, I'm even thinking when you all get tired of me, I may go teach history because history is just really cool. And by the time you walk out of here today, you're going to say, like, Steve, you were like the best history teacher I've had in the last two weeks, right? And, uh, and my, my hope is you're actually going to say, man, the lightning, the light bulb's gone on. I now have a better understanding of the Old Testament. So we're just going to walk this through. But to understand Nehemiah, you got to understand this piece. So the entire Old Testament is a, the story of God's redemption is leading to Jesus. But it starts after the first 11 chapters in the first book. So Genesis chapter 12 with a man. His name is Abraham. And Abraham is chosen by God to be the one through whom his descendants are, are going to populate the earth. And through them, the Messiah is going to come. And so the whole of the Old Testament, by and large, is about the story of Abraham and his children. And here's the thing you have to understand about Abraham. That when God chooses him, God makes a covenant with him. And the, the crucial piece you've got to understand is the covenant that God makes with Abraham is an unconditional covenant. It's not like, well, Abraham, if you do this, then I'll do this. That's conditional. It's just simply Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. And there's three things. I'm going to make you a great nation. By the way, when he meets them, he doesn't have any children. Secondly, I'm going to give you a land that is not here, but is land where all your, your uh, 
lineage are going to live. It's the land of Israel today. And number three, through you, all the world is going to be blessed, i.e., we find out later, Messiah. All right? So it makes this unconditional covenant. So, or uh, with Abraham. So Abraham finally, 100 years of age, has a son. His name's Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. The promise goes through Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Jacob actually gets his name changed to Israel. So by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, what you have is God now takes all the 12 sons of Israel with their families, about 76 in all, down to Egypt, and there he's, they're going to be for 400 years to grow into this nation, and then he is going to lead them out and lead them to the land that he promised to give to Abraham, right? Follow me. So now, 400 years later, you get to the book of Exodus. Now God is choosing Moses to lead out the children of Israel, and he does it through many miracles, right? What's interesting, once he leads them out, he doesn't lead them right to Israel, He leads them to a place called Mount Sinai where they're going to meet God. And there God makes a covenant with them. But this is different. This is a conditional covenant. This is, hey, I'll bless you, but you got to walk in obedience. And if you don't walk in obedience, then a curse is going to come. A lot of places that you could see this. I picked Deuteronomy chapter 11. It says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord and what I'm commanding you, walk in them. The curse, if you don't listen to the commandments of the Lord or turn aside or begin to worship other gods. And, of course, the history then of the children of Israel is that in the midst of God's blessing, they continually don't obey. They continually turn away. And so, so much of the, old, of the entire Old Testament is God trying to draw Israel back, Israel walking in disobedience. So, let me give you this. By the way, you may want to take a picture of this. This is like one of the coolest things to help you understand the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. What most people don't understand, there's only 11 of them that move the history. These are the 11 foundational books. All the history are in these 11 books. All the other books take place You know, these are when they prophesied, and then these were when these books were written. So these are 11 books that that move the history. Now notice what hangs here on the end, Nehemiah. We started back here in Genesis. What I want to focus in on is starting at 1 Samuel. So now... God has led them to to the land of Israel, and now he's establishing their kingdom. And the first king was not God's choice, it was man's choice, it was Saul, it doesn't go real well. And then God brings in a man by the name of David, from the tribe of Judah, from Abraham. So you you see the train coming here. And with David, God makes another covenant, But this covenant is not like with the children of Israel. This is like Abraham's covenant. It is unconditional. It's not, David, if you do this. It's just simply, David, your throne is going to be established forever. The Messiah is going to come specifically through you. And by the way, uh, we know that one day Jesus will sit and reign in Israel, in Jerusalem, the throne of David... That God always keeps his promises, right? 
So David then has a son, Solomon. God makes a covenant with him. Unlike with David, this is a conditional covenant. Solomon, you walk with me, I'll bless you. You disobey, curses are going to come. Well, Solomon started out great. Man, he loved, he loved God. He built the temple. It's one of the most beautiful structures that's ever been made. His heart was for the Lord. He, he reigned with great wisdom. In fact, God gave, made him wiser than any other man. And I don't know how to put this nicely. I could have said adult entertainment, but... Um, <laughs> Solomon had an issue with women. He just really, really liked women. So he ends up with a thousand wives and concubines. A thousand. Now, every married man in here knows the adage. I know some don't like it. Women, you know, wives don't particularly like it, but it's true. Happy wife, happy life. And the reason it's not bad is just that, you know, you're, the, the wife is the soul of the home, right? And if that's not good, nothing else is good. And so you can imagine what this is like with a thousand wives, right? And by the way, a lot of the wives has to do with the fact that they're peace treaties. So it's people from other parts. They don't worship Jehovah God. Solomon, you go and worship in your temple that you made this so great and so beautiful. I don't worship that God. And so towards the end of his life, Solomon, and he was a builder. He liked to build. He started building these shrines to these other gods. And then eventually he began to worship at them too. And he disobeyed. And God said, okay, I'm going I'm to rip the kingdom in part because of this. So sure enough, he dies. His son Rehoboam takes the throne. And now there's a division. And that's what you have right now. You have two now nations that come out of the nation of Israel. The northern ten tribes are Israel. Think, think King Ahab. Think Jezebel. Think Elijah, Mount Carmel, they were very sinful. Then the southern part, which includes Jerusalem, is known as Judah. And, uh, and so this division takes place. Israel, by and large, more quickly walked away from the Lord. And their kings more quickly walked away from the Lord. Because the, the line of David and Solomon didn't go north. It went through Judah. So these kings were very wicked. So that ends, the date there is 722 B.C. The Assyrians came. God gave them over to the Assyrians. The Assyrians moved most of them out. They moved other people in. Then they begin to intermarry. And hence, by the time you get to Jesus, you had the people group called the Samaritans, known as the half-breeds right? Judah had more godly kings, so we continued farther. But ultimately, they walked in disobedience. The, the, the worst one toward the end was a man by the name of Manasseh, who used to sacrifice children there. So this comes to an end, in, and the date right there is 605 B.C., so about 120 years later. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, is Babylon's the one that God is going to use to judge them. And there's three actually dis, de, uh, deportations is the word that they use. 605, so think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story from Sunday school? 605. Then the king was left to say, hey, you know, 
be in submission. He rebelled. 597, Nebuchadnezzar came back, took the king and others into captivity. Set up another king. He completely rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar came back, and this is 586 B.C., completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He pushed down the walls. He burnt the gates. He tore down the temple. There's nothing less. He, he, whatever people were left, by and large, he took them to Babylon. This is the, the exile period. Now, Jeremiah, right there, is the last prophet. He's actually prophesying in Jerusalem when all of this takes place. Daniel is in Babylon, right? So the same time period. Daniel is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah when he realizes, Daniel chapter 9, Jeremiah had prophesied that this captivity was going to take place for 70 years. 70 years. And they're already at this point, years into it. And so Daniel begins to seek the heart and the mind of the Lord. So sure enough, what happens at 70 years, okay? That's that line. It's 538 B.C., the Medes and the Persians, the great King Cyrus, destroyed Babylon and they took over. Here's the cool thing about King Cyrus. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he had a heart for God. I fully expect the King Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar are going to be in heaven. I believe they, they, they follow after God. And his whole point was, I want you to go back... And he picked a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who was of the Jewish captivity, took 50,000 people back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. Sadly, 80 years in, they still had not accomplished it. So 80 years in, the man by the name of Ezra, who is a priest who lived in Babylon, went back. And he now is able to get them to complete the temple. They actually start working on the walls. Uh, but then the enemies of Israel writes to Artaxerxes, who is the king now that we read about here, the 20th reign, the 20th year of his reign, verse 1. Artaxerxes made him stop. So the walls are down, the temple is rebuilt 14 years later, and it's 444 BC. You say, how do we know that? Well, it talks about here in verse 1. It's the 20th year. Uh, uh, Artaxerxes is the sixth king of Persia. He started his reign in 464. We know exactly when it was. By the way, we also know, if you're familiar with Daniel 9, that it's, it's this moment that the clock starts on Daniel's prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. So it all is tied together. So you follow me? Isn't that really good? I see the light bulbs going on everywhere, right? So there we are. Now, when you get to the end of Nehemiah... The history of the Old Testament, in essence, stops. There are 400 years of silence now. Where, where, and if you go and read history, this is the Maccabean period, but it's not biblical history. The next piece of biblical history starts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when a young man by the name of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, arrives on the scene to announce the coming of the Messiah. So that's where we are. So, here's what, oh, and I, I think I was going to pull that up. All right, there we go. Got, got one more shot. So, here's the thing. Verse 3. His brother had come back from Jerusalem. The remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. This whole book is built around Nehemiah 
seeing the burden of what was going on, getting a vision for rebuilding the walls, not to be, you know, to spoil it, but a little bit of a spoiler alert. He's actually going to mobilize, go, and they're going to rebuild the walls in 52 days. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. To me, this is so important because this book is all about rebuilding the wall. But the burden wasn't so much about the wall. It was about the people. That's the focus. I mean, I mean that's the big thing. The, the people that came back, for, you know, again, they survived the captivity. So they've been in Babylon and now in Persia and now they've traveled back and they've been there for for 80 some odd years and and notice what it says they are in great distress and reproach great distress and reproach that that right that word there that he uses for distress is the idea of misery in fact 22 times in the old testament that hebrew word is actually translated disaster they are living in the middle of a disaster the walls are torn down it is a city of rubble now think about it we have rebuilt the temple to our god but our god is so weak that our city is in rubble Do you understand the reproach that that brings to the name of your God? Because here's the thing, and this is not meant to be political, but walls keep bad people out. And you think about it this way. They are under the domain of of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is a long way away. So you have walls. You have big walls. And when an enemy comes as they want to defeat you, they've got to get through the walls. That gives you time to get word to the Persia to bring the army and to save you. In fact, you know that when, when Nebuchadnezzar came to finally completely destroy the city in 586 BC, it took them two years. Two years to get through the walls. They were really important. So these people were, were living in the midst of ruins. They were at the whim of any enemy that would come. They're in distress. They're in reproach. What kind of God do you worship that will allow you to live like this, right? And notice the adjective. The adjective is great distress. And that's the piece. It's not the fact that the walls were down. The walls have been down for 140 some odd years. It's not news to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, there's a good chance we're going to see, because he is the cupbearer of the king, was even there 10 years before when Artaxerxes put a stop to rebuilding the walls. He knew the walls were down. What moved his heart with the compassion of the people that they are living in such distress and reproach. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, what moves the heart of God is not brick and mortar, but what moves the heart of God is people, right? You remember that passage in Matthew chapter 9? Jesus was looking up and he's seeing the people. It says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. Same idea, right? They were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd in fact that's where he says you know the harvest is plentiful the labors are few his heart was moved i mean think about think about jesus on his way to jerusalem to die you can imagine the weight that was upon him in fact it said he sent his face like a flint towards jerusalem and yet walking through jericho here's a 
two little blind guys. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. You read the story, it says he was moved with compassion and he stopped and he healed them. Mark chapter 1. You know, we're living through COVID, you know, and uh, I, I was exposed about 10 days ago, so I had to go get a test, you know, to make sure I didn't have it. And I'm, I'm all negative, don't worry, don't worry, you're good, all right? Uh, but, you know, when, when you do that, you know, you kind of got to hibernate away, you know, try to keep distance and all of this. And, man, it, none, nothing like leprosy. Leprosy in that day was so contagious. In fact, the moment you begin, you were isolated. And if it was, you were kicked out. You could not have family. You could not stay in your house. You were out by yourself. The only other people you could even congregate with with other lepers. Mark chapter 1, the leper calls out Jesus and it says he looked at him and had compassion. He reached out and he did what nobody else would do. He touched him and healed him. It's Jesus coming out of the city of Nain. And here's a widow leading the, the processional of her only son who now has died. And Jesus says she's, he saw this and he was moved with compassion. And he stops and he raises this boy back to life. Folks... What caused the burden, the burden of what was going on to, to, to build within Nehemiah's heart was the people. It wasn't the wall. It, and so the wall became this tangible way to help him. You know, I'm, I'm sure in his mind, he thought, man, I can't fix all of the distrust. I can't fix all of the, you know, there are enemies to Israel. There always have been, there always will be. But but the one thing I can do is I could help get these walls rebuilt. That, that, would, be a, that would be a start. And, and that's where this comes from. And here's the thing. When there's a burden, and God now is beginning to tie it into a vision for you in your life, the burden is always about people. But now it always ties into what you have your position, your provision, your gifting. You know, it's an interesting theology, and I'll put it that way. And I don't have time to go into it a lot, but I would encourage you to look at it, the Old Testament, if you like history, uh, read it. But it's so often, you know, we pray for miracles. And, uh, you know, we like, uh, you know, even today, I mean, maybe this is just me, but every once in a while, I'm driving down the freeway, and where is it? About 75th Avenue, they had the big mega millions billboard, right? And you're driving by, and it's like 400 million gazillion dollars, right? And, and I'm sitting there going, man, wouldn't that be cool? Because think of all the good stuff you could do with that, right? You could, uh, man, you could set your family up. You could give the missions. <laughs> you could tithe to the church. By the way, you win the lottery, you got to tithe to the church. Now, I don't play it, but that's the way my mind goes. You just think about all this good. The problem is most likely in our lifetime, there's not a single person in here. In fact, not a person in our state is going to win that kind of lottery, right? Or maybe you see the single mom that's got, it's working so hard and it's just got that car that's become that, that money hole. It just fix it and breaks, it fix it and breaks. You think, man, if I had a million bucks, I, I just would buy her a 
good, dependable car. It would change your life. But the tr truth is, I'm still in debt. I can't do it. You see, those are kind of dreams. Those things don't do any good for anybody. There's just wishful thinking. For Nehemiah, hey, I can't fix all of this. I can't make all their enemies go away. I can't pull back all the reproach, but I can do something about the wall. And the reason he could do something is because of who he was, what he brought to the table. And as I mentioned, this is kind of an Old Testament piece. You know, we always think of miracles as, you know, coming from outside completely out of the blue. And God sometimes does that. But more often how he does stuff is with the question of what's in your hand. So, Moses... Moses, who was part of the children of Israel, he's going to lead them out of Egypt. Remember, he tried to do it on his own, killed an Egyptian. That didn't turn out so well. Now he's 40 years out in the wilderness. God shows up in a burning bush, says, I want you to lead my people away. And Moses begins to, to just give him every reason why he could. Man, I, I just, I can't talk right. I don't have the strength. I don't, I don't know anybody. You know, all these reasons. And God just asked him, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. It's a shepherd's staff. Nothing big, nothing important. He says, okay, throw it down. It became a snake. He said, pick it up. Became a staff again. He said, that's what you're going to use. And by the way, you're going to go in and you're going to throw it down in front of Pharaoh. And another time you're going you're to stretch it over to the Nile. It's going to turn to blood. Another time you're going to hit the ground and lice and flies and frogs are going to come out. And then you're going to stand at the Red Sea and you're going to hold that same staff out. And I'm going to split it for you. And another time you're going to be out of water. And it, it's, you're going to take that staff and you're going to hit the rock and water's going to come out. What do you have in your hand? Because that's the thing God can use. I love the, the story of uh, Elisha. There was a wife of a prophet the prophet died. She's now a widow. They're deeply in debt. They're going to take her two boys. That's all she had. They're going to take them into slavery. She came to Elisha. Elisha didn't say, God, give her a million bucks. Well, Elisha says, so what do you have in your house? She said, nothing. You've got to have something. She says, a little oil. Perfect. Go borrow every jar and every pot you can borrow from your neighbor. She didn't even have jars and pots. Get as many as you can get and then start pouring. And sure enough, out of that little jar came oil to fill every pot. So much so that when they ran out of pots, the oil quit. They took it. They sold it. Not only paid off the debt, but they had enough for her to live for the rest of her life. What do you have in your hand? So, so Nehemiah, what did he have in his hand? He wasn't a great warrior, as best we know. We only know that he had construction piece. Well, he had two things. Number one, he had access to the most powerful person in the world, King, King Artaxerxes. He is, in fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, he was the cupbearer. The cupbearer was a person who was always around the king. And you say, well, what, how big is that? Well, think about this. Do you remember the story of, of 
Esther. When Esther, who's the wife of the king, couldn't even go in without being called. You couldn't get an audience with this guy. But the cupbearer was there every day. And not only that, he was trusted. Because what the cupbearer did, made sure the king's not getting poisoned. Because everybody wants to kill the king, right? Everybody in the castle wants to be the king. So they want to take him out. And it is the cupbearer that you trust with your life. So that it's like, you know, they're taste testing the food in front of you that they're tasting this part, but they put the poison on this part, right? You got to trust this guy. Nehemiah is the trusted cupbearer of the king. He's got a, a relationship that he can leverage that can make a difference here. He also, and I think we'll see as you go through, he's, he's got a mind for strategy and, and, and for putting pieces together and making things happen. That's what he had in his hand. It's all he had in his hand, but that's all God needed. And the heart of this study, I'm going to continually come back to this question because to me it's the question, and that is, what's God's vision for you today? I mean, what burden has God put upon your heart that, that you're holding something in your hand that God can do something significant? Now, let me tell you a little bit about visions. We often think of visions as being the big things. It's taking on Goliath, right? It's, it's rebuilding the walls of, of, of uh, Jerusalem. It's taking down the walls of Jericho, right? We always think about these big things. A vision from God is not about the size and the scope. It is about people. It's always about people. And it may, not, it may not be significant to hundreds and thousands, but it is a piece that is going to change somebody's life. It's about people. It's about loving people. You know, we've been in this process. We've been asking you to pray about, you know, our campus expansion and the master plan and all this. And, and I realize that for some, it's looking at, well, you know, it's, it's buildings, it's concrete, it's mortar. And, and quite honestly, if that's the way you view it, there would be no reason on God's green earth to do more. Because of the time, the mess, expense, all of this type of thing. But if you think about it from being people that, you know, within five miles of our church... We have 180,000 people, statistically, probably 125, 130,000 of them don't know Jesus. And it's growing every day. And how do we become a lighthouse? How do we train up people? How do we go and plant churches in places like La Paz Centro? City in Nicaragua, 25,000 people that does not have one single evangelical church. And yet, within one month... Bringing it to you, there's a church there now preaching the gospel. And just this week, somebody got saved there. You see, a vision, a vision is not about buildings. A vision is about people. So what's your vision? What's your vision? You know, is it maybe changing your family tree? You know, my dad, my dad was a great man of God. He did a lot of great things for the Lord. But I think ultimately, probably his number one vision was he came from a family of an alcoholic, an abusive home. He had seven siblings. They all ended up in homes and families just like that. Many divorces, lots of alcoholism, lots of abuse. He thought, man, I, I can break the family curse. I, I can start a new family tree. 
Maybe that's it with you. Maybe it's reaching someone with the gospel. You know, 2020 has been crazy, hasn't it? What's 2021 going to be like? We're getting close, man. This might be the year Jesus comes back. Who's that person in my life that needs to know Jesus? And that becomes my vision. And, and, and what I have is I, I may not be the world's greatest evangelist. I might not even know, know the perfect things to say. But, man, I've got, I got relationship. i got leverage. How about changing the culture at work or culture in the neighborhood in a culture that we're so divided? How can I work to make that culture better in a way that it touches people? How about ministering to kids, little kids without parents, little kids that are lost, or, or maybe about young people that are trying to, can you imagine what it would be like today for those of us who are a little more mature to try and navigate life with all the things that you have on your phone now when you were back and you were 13, 14, 15 years old? All the influences that come out of that little thing, and man, a lot of them aren't good. What about influencing and pouring into young people? And the question is, what's your vision? Now, one of the things we're going to talk about next week is that not every burden is a vision. Because there's always burdens. There's always needs. I mean, a lot of people don't like this idea, but it's true. Jesus did not heal every hungry person or feed every hungry person. He did not heal every sick and blind guy. We, 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 we just know that's not true. He did the ones that were in front of him, but that wasn't his burden and his passion. Even though there was the need, need does not ascribe division. Because there's always going to be needs. And so how do you determine, is this a vision that God's given me, or is it the pepperoni pizza I ate last night? In fact, we're going to focus on that specifically starting next week. Because Nehemiah doesn't rush right into this. He starts doing some really important things. And then the second thing is, if this is a vision from God, then what do I have in my hand? So I, I've mentioned to you, and I'll finish with this. And please understand my heart. I, I'm just trying to be as open and as transparent as I can. I mean, I, 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 see, I, I see this area that God has put us, this area of affluence, Right? It's the area where everybody lives in nice houses, drives nice cars. Most of them are, of course, leveraged out the wazoo. Their families are breaking up. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of despair that is going on because a lot of people need Jesus. Here's the, here's the honest truth. I am not a gifted evangelist. I can share my faith. I like to do that. I try to do that. But when I talk about gifted, that this is my gifting, so that I could go out there and I could lead half of them to Jesus, or I could go stand on the, preach, the street corner. My dad was a gifted evangelist. Sean is a gifted evangelist. That's not me. But here's the vision. Here's the burden. Do I have anything in my hand? And again, I, please understand, I'm not trying to, to, to be proud here, but, but what do I have? And I'll tell you the things I think I have. I think God has wired me to be a leader, to be a shepherd, to be an exhorter, to raise up a church that lives on mission. Have you ever heard that expression before? That talks to people about you all live in your oikos, that you are the best way to reach this world, who encourages you to write down people's names so that we can pray that they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ in 2020. I may not be able to lead them all to the Lord, but I got something in my hand. My question to you is with your vision that God wants to birth, what do you have in your hand? Because if it's a vision that God wants you to have, 
there is that peace that you, can, you may not be able to fix the whole problem. I may not be able to reach all 125 or 30,000 people, but we can make a difference.